Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello and welcome back to The Prospect Interview, where we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, a contributing editor at Prospect magazine, and today I'm joined by our science writer, Philip Ball, to ask where we are with COVID now. For our most recent issue, Phil wrote a piece about the long shadow of COVID and what the virus will mean for many years to come, and not just in terms of science and medicine, but also in terms of politics, economics and the cultural memory. Um, Phil, let's just start before we get into all that fascinating kind of broader territory uh, with um, uh, like just where we do stand right now. I remember it's a good few weeks ago now we were finalising your text and as always with a monthly magazine we were wondering like what would hold uh, and uh, as the as the magazine sat on the shelves and we took a punt on around 100 deaths a day as being likely to hold through the month. Since then we've had this extraordinarily successful um, vaccine booster programme which has started to get to all the older people um, and uh, uh, is uh, very effective as well but even so I just looked back this morning at the last week of data, on an average, we're at 130 odd days um, when you uh, smooth things across. So um, it's a pretty bleak situation, really. It is. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, I think the numbers are at the moment um, even higher than that, that we're sort of, you know, nudging 200 deaths a day in the UK. Um, but it is fluctuating as it has done throughout the, the summer and the autumn. Um, but we're not alone in that. Um, and in fact, you know, we're not even the worst in that, that uh, COVID is is just ravaging the uh, the rest of Europe at the moment. Um, so, you know, most other European countries have a serious problem as we do. And a, a high death toll, the death toll, uh, the daily death toll is similar, similar to ours in Italy, for example. Um, it's probably much higher in places like Romania and Russia. Um, so there is a it's kind of becoming unclear whether you call it a fourth wave or a fifth wave of COVID, but it's certainly another wave that is going across the continent and causing real problems everywhere. And other countries are having to really sort of look seriously at not exactly lockdown measures, but certainly at reintroducing some kind of mitigation measures. So this is something that's happening generally. And I think there's um, there's a feeling that we probably got it first 
because it's it's the Delta variant that is expanding everywhere. This is the really infectious variant. And um, that spread in the UK, you know, over the summer. Um, and so it seems likely that what the rest of Europe is getting is is kind of this Delta wave. Um, so it's absolutely clear that, you know, as I said in the piece, um, and when I when I started writing the piece, it sort of there was a feeling that, you know, OK, there's still, you know, ups and downs, but we're heading out of the pandemic. I think that's less clear now. And, you know, I think to careful observers, it was clear all along. We were very much still in a global pandemic. We really are. And this underscores how difficult it is to predict where it's going to be heading. And of course, one of the messages that comes back time and again, and when you stop and think about it, it makes complete sense in your piece, the scientists like Skip Virgin and others that you, you spoke to, is that you know, it has to be a, a, a worldwide um, approach because the virus is no respecter of borders and it will mutate in one place and come back if not and, and all the rest of it. But um, at some point, right, these vaccines are going to do their magic, aren't they? I mean, there's a piece in the same magazine with Gordon Brown. Um, you know, he's saying it's a terrible betrayal because um, like the vaccine should be dished out to everyone in, you know, December, January, February uh, that are coming up now. And in practice, he's worried that that might be um, August, September, October next year. But like a large part of the world is going to be vaccinated, isn't it, by like the, the second half of 2022, uh, well, that's what we can hope. I think even that we can't take for granted. But what we're also seeing is the problems of vaccine hesitancy. Um, so, you know, even in Europe, there's a uh, there are big differences in the take up of the vaccine in different places. The reason that Romania and some other Eastern European countries seem to have the problem they do is that vaccine take up has been so, so low there for reasons that I don't think are fully understood. But clearly, you know, cultures will different differ in how they respond to this vaccine uptake hasn't been great in Germany, which, you know, is also seeing a real problem emerging. So something like 66 percent of the German population is vaccinated. And it looks like it could be hard to push it above that level. So I think that's also the message that, you know, even if the vaccine gets distributed further afield, it's never going to be the whole solution. It, it, it can't be. And partly because not everyone is going to take it. And while that remains the case, we're going to see these problems. Uh, you know, there, there does seem to be a strong body of opinion that it's really th that this vaccine hesitancy is really a big part of the problems that we're seeing in, in Europe at the moment. And, and, and so, isn't it you know, right that the, uh, you know, almost while you're writing the piece and it's only become clearer since... The, the, the idea that the, the the vaccine's protection that it does give you and a very real protection, but it is also time limited. It starts to fade, right? And absolutely, yeah, yeah. So we're going to need. You know, I think it's it's clearly recognised now that we're going to need things like booster programmes and quite possibly, you know, just a, a, a an annual or perhaps more than than annual um, vaccine programme in all countries because the strong likelihood is that um, SARS-CoV-2, the um, coronavirus, is going to become endemic throughout the globe. So that means it's going to remain present at a low level in the same way that cold viruses do. We're not going to be able to eradicate it. And so there's always going to be the potential 
for outbreaks. So we're going to have to to have regular. I, I mean, it's not clear that it will be seasonal, but certainly it's going to always be there. So we're going to have to have regular vaccine programs. But I think it's you know it's also important to recognise that I, I think as people have said all along that vaccines are part of the solution. They can't be all of it, and you know we we've seen that for for many reasons. But there are other things coming along that could help with that. You know there are new antivirals. Um, this new one that Merck has created, it's basically an oral pill um, um, that, it, you know, seems to be very effective in suppressing the worst that uh, that COVID can do. Um, that's just been approved literally this, this month, just a few days ago. It's been approved in the UK for use. Um, and there's going to be, I'm quite sure there are going to be more treatments like this coming along. So, you know, part of the issue is going to be not getting rid of COVID, but actually reducing its effects to a level that might, you know, become ultimately, one would hope, comparable with dealing with flu if we have enough treatments that can that can uh, avoid the worst. So I think that's really the future we're looking at. It's certainly going to be a future, almost certainly going to be a future of living with COVID. But that can be possible if other things are done. And those will also include non-pharmaceutical interventions. You know, it may become and should, I think, become standard practice for populations to return to wearing masks and perhaps to some degree of social distancing or working from work or these relatively low level measures when there are local outbreaks of, of COVID. OK, so, so, so there's things we can do. We're going to be managing it, but it's not going to be great. And then we get to this question of the shadow, don't we? Let's, let's sort of start with the world of health and medicine and work out. We've both had uh, this virus, haven't we, in, in, in the last uh, period. And um, I mean, uh, like, I wasn't very ill at all. But I tell you what, I feel a lot more wheezy than I used to. I've got this mild asthma and it's not quite as mild as it was before I had COVID now. And I well, keep hearing stories yeah. like this. Absolutely. I mean, no, I mean, I think I um, got off lightly and I sort of, you know, <laughs> think that for, for my uh, in my case, it was probably the vaccine that that, that, that helped that. I, you know, I barely knew I, I had it apart from complete loss of smell and taste. Uh, of course, one of the giveaway symptoms, um, which was kind of weird. Um, so I was, you know, one of the lucky ones. And most people, you know, most people will be, particularly if if they're doubly vaccinated. Um, but uh, I, I, I think, you know, this is also the thing to remember. We see these sort of daily statistics of, you know, how many deaths and how many hospitalizations. Of those, um, and certainly of the hospitalizations, there will be plenty of people who come away with long term health problems, you know, by which I mean over six months and possibly, you know, indefinitely, um, because we know that this virus causes so many health complications. It hits the lungs and uh, causes problems there, but it can cause problems in other organs as well. It can lead to other uh, types of organ failure. And we, we now know that it seems to be implicated in some cases in some kind of brain damage. And we, you know, we just don't know enough about that, about how long term that might be. But that's a really serious concern. You know, it's it, it goes from the sort of brain fog that a lot of people report uh, months afterwards to, you know, potentially more serious uh, neurological problems. So there are a lot of problems that COVID causes, you know, aside from the fatality risk. And I think that one of the uh, messages that sort of starting to emerge now is that what we're looking at is a, a, a long term health burden coming from COVID. Yeah. OK, well, let's move from the um, effect on uh, 
all of the patients, or I should say us patients, uh, to um, the health system, you know, because there's a lot of focus now on, like, we're going to have to, like, you know, clear this NHS backlog and clearly the waiting list is the longest they've ever been and everything because so many things have been cancelled, but they're going to be treating this long-term, giving less thought to this, all these people with these different um, uh, conditions and frailties that, that come out of COVID. But there's also the staff, isn't there? People are absolutely exhausted who've been running the ICU units um, uh, before we get to the midwinter this time. Oh, the, absolutely, they are. And, you know, exhausted, I'm, I'm sure, physically, but mentally as well. You know, there there's going to be a real, I, I mean, you know, this is part of the, the, the long-term mental health burden that's going to come out of this. It's, it, it's certainly going to be a case for many um, health workers. And you know, I, I think not enough attention has been given to that. But it's clearly going to be an issue more generally in the population as well. I mean, obviously for people who have lost loved ones, but I think just the, the mental impact of what we've gone through and particularly amongst young people. I think, you know, this is one of the really tragic things that it's the young people have had to, of course, give up so much when they are in relative terms. You know, the risks for them were, were very small, but it's been disruptive for their schooling, for their friendships, for their, you know, their, their personal growth and development in all kinds of ways. So uh, I guess what, what I really wanted to start looking at, really start the conversation in this piece was how culturally we deal with what has really been, um, you know, quite clearly a trauma uh, nationally, internationally and personally. I mean, it, it, like one thing as often, you know, when the, when the tide goes out on something, you sort of see what's rotten underneath and um, like the social and economic inequalities, they get talked about in uh, kind of unworthy journals. But I mean, with COVID and the deaths and the, the like, I think it's twice as high in the more deprived, uh, at least twice as high in the more deprived neighbourhoods as the, as the least deprived um, neighbourhoods. I mean, really huge differences. That, that That's right. And I think it's really important to recognise that, you know, as in so many other ways, what this pandemic has done is brought a spotlight on pre-existing problems. And amongst those is the fact that health has always been a political and socio-economic issue. We've always known this. We've always known that the burden falls hardest on, uh, on the most deprived people, the most deprived communities. Um, it's just been brought into stark contrast here. Um, so, you know, I really hope that that's one of the things that is that is going to be recognised. And it's part of the reason why, you know, I say that vaccines or any kind of medical interventions are only part of the problem, because actually, you know, this has highlighted the flaws that have always existed in, in healthcare. And, you know, the, the, I mean, we talk about that in terms of what's happening in Britain. You can see it very clearly in the differences in uh, COVID prevalence amongst uh, between areas of you know high and 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 low uh, income, but you see it in, even more starkly in the United States. Um, you know, and I, I there are people I think quite rightly saying how clearly it's pointed out the utter dysfunction of the healthcare system in countries like that. Yeah, and just and just the the, the the inequality. I mean, there's so many people in America and parts of America with things like untreated diabetes and whatever going into this. Uh, that uh, you know, with this phrase "underlying conditions" that obviously covers all kinds of things. I mean, um, like there's underlying conditions and underlying conditions, aren't there? 
Well, obesity is is clearly a big risk factor with COVID, as it is with many other health conditions. And it seems likely that that's, that's played some role in why the UK has been so badly hit, because we do have one of the biggest obesity problems, not as big as the, as the US, but it certainly is in, in you know, global terms. So absolutely that, you know, conditions like that or, or uh, uh, um, complications like that that are pre-existing, um, you know, we don't necessarily, when we hear about pre-existing health conditions, we tend to think of things like people with serious asthma and other, you know, breathing problems. But obesity is absolutely one of them, as it is, you know, for heart disease. And that too is clearly a socioeconomic problem. So, you know, all of these things are connected and, and, it, and it, it, I, I really do hope that there is some serious thought, you know, put into the not just how we prepare in future for future pandemics, which are almost certainly going to happen, but how we think more broadly about health in these kind of socio-economic and political terms. As well as kind of forcing a bit of a reckoning on those kind of fronts, though, there's something else going on in the other direction, which is a kind of slow kind of normalisation and acceptance of what's going on. So as we were saying at the beginning, let's be cautious. Let's say at the moment it is like roughly 100 odd deaths a day. And that's compared to five or so deaths a day on the roads and all the panoply of kind of regulation and uh, monitoring and rules and regulations we have about that. But um, like some people in the government seem to sort of think, well, 100 a day just kind of live with it. Um, that'd be 36,000 deaths annually, which I think is about 5% increase in deaths annually if we just let that roll indefinitely. Um, I mean, um, do you know what I mean? So as well as pe- some people are saying, right, this forces a reckoning in one way, other people are saying, well, actually, there's always been deaths. If there's a bit more, we'll deal with it. I, I This is something that I find really disturbing, chilling, actually, that, you know, because in the UK, since the, the summer, we've had this rel- relatively... It depends on your point of view, whether you call it a high or low level. There's certainly been a lot of COVID around, uh, but it stayed at much the same level, around 100, 150 deaths a day, around 1,000 deaths a week, which is horrific, of course, when you think about it. And certainly in comparison with with other common causes of of death, as you say, it's a real problem. And yet somehow that has come to seem like the new normal and the health secretary Sajib Javid has you know has said that okay things look kind of okay because they're stable <laughs> um which you know they they're stable at this high level that for, for other situations we, there is no way we would tolerate something that was causing a thousand deaths a week and i think this is really just the extreme end i suppose of a more general cultural tendency to to normalize what's 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 happening and you know i find it myself i can completely understand why this is happening because it it, it is hard to process since as you say i i got the the virus i got it in in late august and you know i was lucky to get through it and then i felt well you know now i have i'm doubly vaxxed and i've had it i can really rely on a good level of of uh, immunity until around christmas and so i can start to do things and go out and you know things that i have not done for 18 months go on trains go on the tube i went on the tube the first time last week and uh, for 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 you know almost 2 years 
And I was disturbed by how normal it felt. It felt as though I'd been on there, you know, a week before. And I was disturbed by how my brain is telling me, is normalising, you know, what has happened and collapsing this whole period of trauma for others much more than me into, you know, something that almost never happened. And I think culturally, this is what's likely to happen too, that there's going to be, unless we make a concerted effort to do otherwise, there's going to be a sort of cultural forgetting, a wish to forget, a wish to move on, which we cannot do, but which um, you know, instinctively we are, we're inclined to try to do. And so, I mean, this brings us on to, I mean, uh, kind of um, an appeal in your piece in a way for us to like, you know, stop just trading and talking about this in statistics, but to start telling some human stories, because we know those are the things that lodge with people and that, that change the way things are perceived. And then you get onto this contrast between the pandemic of 100 years ago, 1918-19, Spanish flu, which killed more people than the First World War, but it's so much less remembered than the First World War that all our kids still learn about in primary school now and was immortalised in the poetry of Wilfred Owen and all the rest of it. Um, I mean... If we want people to really take this seriously and um, minimise the deaths, um, like, what do we do? Is it just that it's not as dramatic and interesting as people dying in war and so it lends itself less to drama? Or is it? Is there a way that we will be able to remember it as a shared trauma like, like war? What do you think? Well, I spoke to David Hare, the playwright, about this because David had written um, one of the few, one of the, the earliest, certainly, um, you could say, artistic responses to the pandemic. He, uh, his play called Beat the Devil, which was put on in London at the Bridge Theatre in August of, uh, in the summer of, of 2020. Uh, it was a monologue because that was all you could do at that stage uh, with Ray Fiennes, um, who was basically um, personifying David Hare himself because um, he caught COVID early on, was, you know, pretty ill with it, but he came through it, obviously. And it was really a dramatisation of that experience, but at the same time, a, a critique of how the, the government responded. So it was a kind of polemical play, I guess. And I went, went to see it. I reviewed it for the for the Lancet uh, that summer. It was a very odd experience of just going to a theatre, you know, in that sort of lull, that almost, you know, period of quasi-normality that we had in the, in the summer of last year. So there was an audience, and, uh, was there, Phil? Was, it, was there an audience or was it just you in there? Uh, it was um, a distanced, socially distanced audience. So the bridge had taken out, you know, uh, two, probably two out of every three seats. And we were sitting in little, you know, isolated clusters. So it was a very odd experience. Um, but uh, I, I so this is why I, I spoke to, to David, because he'd already, you know, thought about this. Um, and his view was that we're in a period of uh, not wanting to look at it at the moment, that we're, you know, perhaps we will move on from this. But at the moment, he felt that we're in a, he called it an ABC period, anything but COVID. That's the message that he said he had got from, you know, commissioners at the BBC. And the BBC, for example, didn't, that, that his, his play Beat the Devil has been filmed. It's now been put out on a, a cable channel, but it, it, it didn't, it wasn't um, uh, approved by the BBC. 
whether that was partly because it was so excoriating about the government, I don't know, but it may have also been a general turning away from from looking at this. We've had um, there was the the excellent, I thought, um, uh, TV programme Help with um, uh, Stephen Graham and Jodie Comer looking at what happened in care homes. Um, you know, devastating sort of expose, really, of the lack of uh, attention that that got at the height of the, the first wave. Um, but there has been little else. And I'm, I, I guess I'm feeling it, it, it's going to be it, it, it's going to be um, a, a potential role of the arts to help us understand this as it is to help us understand any trauma as you know they have done for the for, for the, the the first world war for the second world war for other you know national traumas and international traumas but it's not clear how that's going to happen or whether that's going to happen yet i but if you go back to the to, to the 19 uh, 1819 flu i mean there's this book that very well regarded and well received laura spinney on the pale rider but until that, I mean, there was it was something that was there as a footnote in the you know history book about the First World War. Oh, and then there was this flu that killed even more people. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think you know probably you know a lot of people now will be completely familiar with the Spanish flu episode because so many comparisons have been made. And you know, Laura's book was incredibly timely in that it came out uh, just just before this. And uh, Mark Honigsbaum, uh, Mark Honigsbaum too, has um, brought out a book about pandemics. You know, looking at that and others just as covid was was breaking so you know in that sense it was very timely but uh but but you know otherwise they would have probably been speaking to a relatively small audience um so it was really something that had you know disappeared in the cultural memory I again I reviewed um, for the Lancet an exhibition that was put on at the Florence Nightingale Museum um I guess it was probably a couple of years ago about the Spanish flu and you know, it was it, it was my first uh, real sort of experience of what that meant, of the horror of what that meant, the awful you know situation that affected everyone in daily life in a way that the the First World War didn't. And yet again, we 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 you know those things had they were a footnote in history books. Um, so you know, I but there wasn't the same um there wasn't a lockdown there wasn't and and so you know if you think back to last march april may it was like you know the schools are closing everything's different so you had people dying at home but you didn't have this extraordinary sense that everyone in the country at the same time was affected perhaps uh as, as they were by regulation this time around well, there were, I mean, certainly there were measures taken to try to mitigate things uh, during the Spanish flu. There had to be because it was, you know, it, I, I mean, but in a sense, <laughs> you could say we've had lockdowns since the, the plagues, since the Black Death. You know, people would, would isolate them. They would, you know, they they would nail up their doors and, and stay at home as much as they could. Of course, you didn't have deliveries to, uh, you know, to, to keep you in food at that in those times. But we have had, you know, those sorts of traumas before. And I, I think what what was what's really striking and interesting to me is that Mark Honigsbaum, uh, who's written about these pandemics, has you know just uh, has made an argument that actually it was a uh, a, a sort of co not just a cultural forgetting, but a, a, a forgetting of the experience of things like the Spanish flu on the part of epidemiologists that they didn't think you know they had forgotten some of the lessons that could have been learned from that outbreak and that he he has argued that had they attended more 
to the historical lessons of pandemics rather than, as he sees it, in the UK at least, thinking we can model our way out of or through this pandemic, then we would have probably done things very differently and perhaps less catastrophically. Yeah, so it's a bit like um, economists not worrying about that form of debt crisis before 2008 because it hadn't happened for, you know, 80, 90 years. So it's like <laughs> just sort of only only look at the more recent period. But um, as if we haven't piled enough misery into our listeners' ears, um, you do say uh, that, um, like, although it was 100 years last time, there's good reason to think why new pandemics could be back sooner next time, um, which uh, it's our sorry duty to fill read, uh, listeners in on, I guess. Well, it, yes, I mean, it, it, it is, you know, and that's why we have to hope that we will learn from this one. And, and you know, th- th- this is because we, we now know that there are so many viruses of all sorts out there in the wild as uh, this one seemed to be, you know, the, the consensus is still that it came from bats quite, you know, through what transmission route isn't known, although there there does seem to be now pretty good evidence that it, it happened through the Wuhan wet markets rather than uh, a, a lab leak. But in any event, it clearly started in the wild. And a big part of that problem, and it's the same with Ebola, and it was the same, in fact, with HIV, that uh, a big part of the problem is um, that human communities, as we expand, we expand into these, you know, areas worldwide, into these areas of uh, wildlife that are reservoirs of these viruses that have the potential to jump from animal populations to humans. There are many more of them. And uh, so it's very hard to see how that isn't going to happen more and more, just as uh, you know, a part of the way we are expanding into previously wild areas. And so that's you know, almost inevitably going to be the, the, the transmission route for other viruses. One of the things that really um, uh, chilled me uh, uh, when I wrote a piece uh, early on in the pandemic for Prospect about the development of vaccines. I spoke to the people at the National Institutes of Health in the US who were developing the what's now the Moderna um, mRNA vaccine. And Barney Graham, the head of that section, uh, told me that it was actually quite fortunate that this was a coronavirus because we knew something about those um, because, uh, you know, we, we'd had SARS was a coronavirus, MERS was a coronavirus. We've, there's some research being done into them. There are whole families of viruses that we know almost nothing about. And he, he said, you know, that has to be one of the priorities, you know, in, in the future, that we just have to have a much better understanding of all the viruses potentially out there that could become human pathogens. Um, so, you know, I, I, I think that unfortunately, the worrying message is that we don't even at the moment really understand the scale of the problem we face. We don't know the potential. We know that there are thousands of other viruses like this out there, but there could be many more that we haven't even recognised yet. But we probably have learned, you would hope we've learned that it makes sense to lock down quickly while we find out. You know, well, we find out about the new virus we don't know about for next time. 
I, I hope that, you know, we've learned that because that was part of the problem, that we'd never done this before. And there was a feeling, certainly in the UK, that it couldn't be done. There was no basis for that view. And clearly it had been done in, in East Asia effectively. Um, but there was this exceptionalist view um, here and I think in some other countries that you just couldn't do that. And now we know that you can, that people will respect that and that it is effective. So we know that that is, you know, that is a measure. But I think we've also um, seen this tremendous uh, uh, advance, leap forward in development of vaccines. Um, not all of a sudden, not overnight by any means. You know, we were very lucky that we had decades of experience in building these new vaccine platforms that we could, you know, then call on to develop the coronavirus vaccine. But we know that we can do it in this incredibly short space of time if there's enough uh, money there, if there's international cooperation and so on. The, the the speed with which new antivirals has been found is also really impressive and really heartening. So, you know, there are some reasons for hope. There are some lessons we, we could have learned for what we have to do to respond to this, um, but also, you know, lessons in terms of developing treatments against viruses like this. One of the things I mentioned actually in my piece is that there's now work on pan-coronavirus vaccines. So it, it does seem at least conceivable and, you know, big pharmaceutical companies are working on this to develop vaccines that should work certainly against all of the COVID variants that one could conceive, that they hit enough targets on the virus that it can't mutate away from them. So that's one hope. And, you know, it is conceivable, at least, that they might work for all coronaviruses because they do have things in common. So, you know, there, there are um, new avenues for um, the development of, of, of treatments like this that are being explored. OK, I think we should leave it there because, you know, that is a hopeful note on uh, what to end on what's been humanity's darkest chapter for a very long time. But thank you, Phil. Um, that uh, ranging piece on the long shadow of COVID, still there on the Prospect website, still works, even though so much has happened since uh, you wrote it. So do please look it up. Um, our producer is Sarah Collins. Um, and if you enjoyed this podcast, do leave us a rating or a review. Goodbye, stay safe, and we'll see you next week.